chapter 14, and we're going to be dealing with the first paragraph again. We gave uh, just an overview of that last week, and so this morning we're going to get a little bit more into detail as to exactly what this paragraph is about. Uh, We're going to get into the specifics of how saving faith uh, is where it comes from, uh, why it's important to understand where saving faith comes from. And so we're going to begin by reading paragraph 1 again, and then if you'll have your Bibles ready, we'll be in Romans 10. So chapter 14 of the Confession, and then Romans 10. So here's what paragraph 1 says by way of review. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word by which also and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. It is important to point out that saving faith is not given by the means of baptism, nor given by the means of the Lord's Supper, nor given by the means of prayer. Remember, we talked about this in an overview. Those are the things which strengthen and increase our faith, not things that give us faith. If baptism gave us saving faith, if the Lord's Supper gave us saving faith, if prayer gave us saving faith, then we would have a works-based salvation, which cannot be. So the important part to remember here is this grace of faith is the, the enablement to believe to the saving of their souls. Now, last week we dealt with the, we considered the subject, faith is a grace. And now this morning the title is similar, but we're going to add a step to that for better understanding. And simply we're going to consider this morning that faith is a gracious gift. So faith is a gracious gift. So remember what we learned last week about faith. First of all, we learned that faith is a work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And that, secondly, we learned that faith is ordinarily wrought by preaching. In other words, the preaching of the word is the converting means that's ordained by God. Uh, It is unmistakable that throughout Scripture, it is the preaching of the word that converts the soul. It is the means in which the soul was converted. Now, we realize without the power of the Spirit, there is no regeneration, but regeneration occurs through through the word of God being preached. Uh, This really uh, puts to rest the idea of what became very popular, especially got popular in the late 80s into the 90s, uh, which was called lifestyle evangelism, which is simply if I just live a good moral life that I will convince somebody that their life is so different from mine that that will bring them to repentance and they will change their life. Uh, That's not evangelism and that's not the gospel. Uh, There are plenty of people who are unbelievers who live, uh, so to speak, moral lives. They appear to be good people. Lifestyle evangelism, yes, our lifestyle should be different. But evangelism is the preaching of the gospel. It's not just simply living a life that is different. There's a lot of different people in the world. Uh, There's differences on every continent. But saving faith is wrought by preaching, which is the converting means as ordained by God. It is the work of God we learn, but practiced by man. So we understand that it is man who is preaching the gospel. God has ordained 
that mankind would be the preachers of the gospel. Now, God could have chosen any means in which he chose to do. He could have made the gospel preached from the heavens. In other words, that we would have gone out or been sitting somewhere and we would have heard this voice from heaven preaching the gospel. But as Romans 10 will show us this morning, it is through the preaching of the word. And questions like, how shall a man hear? How shall a man know? How shall a man have faith? He has faith because it is wrought through the preaching of the word. And then we also learn that faith is increased and strengthened by confirmatory means, which was baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. When we observe those things and practice those things, they're not making us more saved. They are confirming to us that we are indeed in possession of saving faith. Saving faith always has evidence. Okay, a man can claim to have saving faith, but if he has no evidence of that saving faith, you have to ask, does that man truly know Christ? So this morning, we're going to get into a little bit more detail about uh, this paragraph number one. But I also want us to go to Romans 10 today. And I want to look at this passage, especially as the final authority, of course, on what is happening here. Now, we understand contextually that Romans 10 primarily deals with, okay, it primarily deals with Israel's rejection of Christ. Now, because of Israel's rejection of Christ, there's a couple things we need to keep in mind. Remember, Israel was given the first oracles. Uh, think of it this way. They were given the first opportunity or the first rights to the things of God. There was a point in time when it was ordained that the only message of the gospel in itself was to go to the Jews only and go to the Jews first. Then it was later expanded to go into the Gentiles. That's very clear from Scripture. Now, just because Romans 10 primarily deals with Israel's rejection does not mean that we can paint it with a broad brush and say, because this primarily deals with Israel's rejection, this has nothing to do with the Gentiles' rejection of Christ. It is very similar. But we know that Paul's primarily talking about his own people because of what he says there in verse 10. He said, or uh, chapter 10, verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul's greatest desire was that Israel would be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Paul acknowledges the very thing which Israel was known for. They were zealous for good works. They were zealous for following the law, but they did not have a true knowledge of God that was according to Jesus Christ. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Israel, of course, is guilty of that, but so is mankind. A works-based salvation is an attempt to establish your own standing of righteousness. If you believe you, sa you saved yourself by your own works, you are just as guilty of verse 3 as the Israelites would have been. You're trying to establish your own acceptability before God. That's why baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer can never establish righteousness that's acceptable before God. It's only through Christ. For Christ, here it is, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. That's faith. For Moses describeth, 
Moses, his Old Testament, right? Describeth the righteousness which is of the law. That man, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. That is a powerful statement. If you attempt and you desire the law to be your final authority, then in order to establish righteousness which will be acceptable for a holy God, you must do them in their entirety all the time for all of your life. And you can never once slip up. Everyone in this room knows that is an impossibility. Moses was not giving the law as a means of saying, this is how you'll become righteous before God. The law was given to show us that the only means and ways in which we can have an established righteousness before Jesus, before God, is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his righteousness which is imputed to us. But the righteousness, which is of what? Faith. Speaketh on this wise, or this is what it says. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or, who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, the word of, what's that next word? Faith. The word of faith which we preach. Faith, preaching, preaching, faith. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, notice what it doesn't say. If you will confess your baptism, if you will confess the Lord's Supper, if you will confess by prayer, no, he says, if you will confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. This is like that only road. There is only one aisle in which this is found. If you will confess the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's an amazing thing. There's not a lot of, there's many gospel presentations that have nothing to do with his resurrection. His resurrection is just as much a part of the gospel as his, as his death and burial. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness... Now, what does that tell us? That this is an act of man. Man's not the one establishing the faith, but God is, that man is responding. We are not robots. You, you, you are not called and pulled to Christ kicking and screaming. You came willingly. The difference is we teach and believe biblically that you did not choose just along your own. The Holy Spirit of God opened your eyes and enabled you to believe. This was not a 50-50 proposition. If we even take 1% credit for us coming to Christ, then that means we have established at least a portion of our own righteousness, which cannot be so. So, for the Scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. I love that message because here's where he really puts it to where we are. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. I don't have to preach one gospel for the Jews and one gospel for the Gentile or the Greek. It's one gospel found in one Christ, Jesus. 
Isn't it amazing how our, our religion today has moved into, and it's, it's sickening to the, my core, that we have decided as churches, sadly, to change our gospel depending upon the demographic in which you're dealing with? The gospel is no different for somebody on the West Coast than it is on the East Coast, and it's no different than somebody who lives in the deepest, darkest jungle somewhere than where it is right here. Or somebody's lifestyle. I don't choose a different gospel because their lifestyle is different. Because here's what every person has in common. We are all sinners in need of a Savior and can only be saved through Jesus Christ alone. No matter what economic status you are, no matter what history you have, and no matter where you live, no matter what the color of your skin is, the gospel is the very same, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Now, we understand that when you see the word all there, that does not mean universal salvation. We like to take the word all and say, see, that means everybody is open to this. No, what he says is all that call upon him. I can't make a guarantee that everybody in this room is saved or will be saved. But what I can promise today is, is that every single person in this room who calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And if that means it's all of us, then praise the Lord for it. But that does not guarantee that everyone here is just because you heard it. Or just because you even acknowledge, hey, I get this. Remember, confession. Believing what? Confess Jesus. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now the 100% free will crowd says to that, see, Romans 10, 13 says whosoever. We have said from the very beginning, we believe in whosoever salvation. We just believe that there's a difference in how that whosoever acknowledges it. Whosoever simply means that those who've been enabled to believe, that is for whosoever. That's why we give the repent and believe the gospel to every single soul. We don't choose who can hear and who can't. Now here's where we see Paul, he doesn't divert from just Israel, but he now introduces people in general, disobedient people. What is a sinner? A sinner is disobedient to the law of God. All of sin that comes short of the glory of God. So here's what he says. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Now please notice the word order. I realize some of you may have a different translation and the word order might be different. But the concept is the same. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? They're not going to call on a person they don't believe in. This idea that says, I'm going to call, then believe. No, the reason you call is because you do believe. It's very important. And how shall they believe in, whom, in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? It doesn't say, how shall they hear with a lifestyle evangelist? How shall they hear without a preacher? And then he speaks about the preacher. And how shall they preach except they be sent? No matter how you feel about this this morning, folks, every preacher, every true preacher of the gospel is sent by God himself. Man does not choose to be a preacher on his own. He's motivated by what's taken place in him. 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. I love the fact that the translation gives us an explanation point. Paul's not just saying, you know, wow, how beautiful are the feet of the preachers. I mean, this is something he is ecstatic about because he realizes this is where saving faith comes from. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Remember how we've said that the gospel is not an invitation, it's a commandment. When we proclaim, repent and believe the gospel, you are not giving man a choice to decide for himself. You are commanding by the authority of God that he obeys the gospel and does what? Repents and believes. How beautiful are those feet, he says. And then... Paul quotes Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 53. For Esaias, or Isaiah, saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? Isaiah 53 is the high watermark of the Old Testament for what really is the, the complete prophecy of Jesus Christ and his coming, his death, his suffering, his resurrection, his burial. It is the single most rejected chapter in all the Bible by the Jewish people. If you try to point them to Isaiah 53, they will say, Isaiah 53, we don't acknowledge it as authoritative. You know why? Because they cannot argue with the reality of who is being spoken of in Isaiah 53. It is none other than the suffering servant that will be found in Jesus Christ hundreds of years before Christ ever came. That's rejection. So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily their sound went into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. Paul is not saying that this gospel is being concentrated just to the Jew or just to one people. The question is, have they not heard? Yes, there is an awareness of God by every human being who lives. The atheist is convincing themselves that there's not a God. They were not born atheist. Even you and I were not born atheist. We're born with a desire to worship something. But by the grace of God, our eyes are opened and our ears are opened and unstopped to hear and see the truth of Jesus Christ. And we worship him as a result. But I say, and here's where Paul drives this home. Did not Israel no. The answer to that question is what? Yes. His coming was not a secret. The Jews knew before the Gentiles knew and other nations knew about the coming Messiah. The Old Testament is filled with the reality of what the Jews knew. First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. You know what, you know what Moses was prophesying about? Because of your rejection, who should have known me, who knew the oracles of God, I'm going to provoke you to jealousy. You're going to be jealous of a Jesus you don't want because I'm going to let the gospel go to the Gentiles. Does everybody see that? This is really powerful stuff here. Why did Jesus... Tell the disciples to go to the Gentiles as a fulfillment of the prophecy that God had said through Moses, I am going to provoke 
the people who had the first oracles of God, I'm going to make them jealous that their gospel, which they won't accept, I'm going to make it available to other people. That was part of the reasons the Pharisees hated Jesus Christ so badly. Because he was a fulfillment of those prophecies. Talk to an Orthodox Jew today and they will acknowledge Moses, they'll acknowledge Abraham, they'll acknowledge David, and they'll tell the story and recount their goodness and their works as much as you and I will. But mention that those men were not to be honored and worshiped themselves, but they were to point us to one single person in history, Jesus Christ, who would come, and that's where you'll lose them. See, people want God, believe it or not. As crazy as this statement I'm going to make is, we live in a world, we make this, we make this foolish assessment that most people don't want God. No, the problem is they really do want God. They're just trying to find their own sense of righteousness. Now, does that mean they're seeking him? No. But do you know the emptiness that the world feels? Do you know what causes that emptiness? It's a lack of God. That's why there is not a single thing in this world that will ever fulfill you. I don't care how many zeros are behind your bank account. You'll never be satisfied apart from Christ. I have watched over the years. I've watched people time after time after time leave the things of God and say, I'm going to go find happiness in this world. They never, ever, ever find it. And the prayer is, is that they will be brought to repentance and brought to the reminder that there is no hope apart from Christ. Now that's important because sometimes we think that people who possess true saving faith never have moments of weakness. That they never have times when they seemingly turn away from the things of God. But as I've mentioned to you and I mentioned last week, faith is a grace. Faith is not something that's given to you and then taken away. That's so important that we get that today. I hear some gospel sermons that suggest that it can be taken away. You can't point anywhere scripturally where a true believer who's in possession of saving faith actually loses it. You say, what about Saul in the Old Testament? The Spirit of God left him. That's an entirely different context. But please understand here, Notice what he says in verse 20. But as Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long, I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. This possession of saving faith begins to show us and Romans 10 shows us truly where saving faith comes from. So faith is a gracious gift. How do we know it's a gracious gift? Well, if you'll recall, back in chapter 6 of our confession, that is the chapter that deals with man's sin. We came to the conclusion that man is in a depraved spiritual condition. And if you'll recall, we talked a lot, even in the discussion afterward, the question and answers during those periods, we talked about can a person who is outside of the body of Christ do anything good. And we came to the conclusion that every person can do something good by the world standards. But what they can't do is spiritual good. Spiritual good can only be done by those who are truly in Christ. 
Now, we have a gauge that mankind uses. Do you know we categorize people by our, often by our own opinion of what defines good, what defines okay, and what defines bad? We all do it. We do that based often upon what we see, what we know, how we've been brought up, what we think. People that say, I have, and I've had this conversation recently, that I don't have any presuppositions about anything. You're not telling the truth. Every one of us have presuppositions about life. We have presuppositions about what we think about the word. I told you many years ago, the only way I could even get to my place and escape the reality of the struggle I was having spiritually between what is really the gospel and how, what, are, what is really the sovereignty of God mean? What is the providence of God mean? What are these doctrines of grace? The only way I could do that was to go back to the word and say, okay, I need to try to deprogram everything that I was told to believe and say, no, what's the Bible actually teach? Folks, a lot of what we are is based upon what someone told you to believe. And I cannot stress this enough. Yes, you should listen to those who are teaching the Bible properly. But if that's where it ends, you will be sucked in to everything and anything that comes down the pike. That's why everybody from this pulpit will tell you, to a man, go home and study for yourself. And if you're teaching the gospel, you're teaching the Bible, you're not afraid to tell somebody, go home and study. But if a man tells you, you can't understand this without me, you are in a dangerous situation. I am not the single authority, nor any man who stands in this pulpit, they are not the single authority on the word of God. We are to be like the Bereans and study for ourselves. And if you're in a healthy church, Whoever preaches that message is going to say to you, if you have questions, come and ask me about it. And they're going to willingly say, you know what, I'll be glad to answer any way I can. And they might actually have the answer occasionally. I'm not sure. But I'm going to, try, I'm going to find out for you. So when we talk about the, the goodness of man, we talked about that because of our sinful condition, if we're just left to ourselves, we cannot do spiritual good. But yet somehow, because the sovereignty of God in salvation angers people, they say things like this. Well, God is sovereign in everything except the salvation of man. How dare we say God cannot or is not sovereign in salvation? I can't tell you how many people I've made mad by saying that. When I told somebody one time that, you know, my life has taken this, this journey to where at, at, there was a point in my life that I thought salvation was 100% dependent upon me and my choice. And when I told them that I believe all I said, they said, you know, something's different about you. And I said, really, the biggest difference in me, and it will change the entire what the Bible says, is I believe in the sovereignty of God in all things, including salvation. I told this story, and it's nobody, I don't think anybody here knows, but I know that there was at one point someone standing here in this pulpit who said, I do not believe in the sovereignty of God, period. Not just salvation, sovereignty of God at all. They basically said, God is disconnected from society. He's just letting man do what man's going to do until man burns himself out. I'm telling you right now, I don't want to live in that world if that's the case. 
The sovereignty of God is a precious doctrine. The sovereignty of God in my salvation is an even more precious doctrine because I know apart from his sovereignty in my salvation, I'm not choosing him. Why? Because if we can't do spiritual good because of our depraved condition, how do we think we can come to Christ on our own? That's what Jesus meant in that all familiar passage in John 6 when he says in verse 44, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Now the 100% free will crowd will tell you that God draws every person equally. Show me scripturally where he does that equally. I will raise him up at the last day. Here's the key. It is written in the prophets. Now, if you believe in universal salvation, you would have to be a universal salvationist to believe in this. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. So if the only guideline is hearing and learning, right, then every man is going to come. So if the gospel, if everybody is drawn and everybody hears it, then everybody's coming, right? Except we don't see a universal salvation. We don't see it scripturally. We see that there's a drawing. Later on in that passage in verse 64, Jesus says this, but there are some of you that believe not. Now those were people that had heard. Those were people that had learned. But look what it says. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. You can't even come to God through Christ unless he gives it to you. Well, that's a mean, hateful doctrine. No, if you understand the doctrine of God, the fact that he invites and allows any to come to him is the amazing part. The question is, why does God exclude people? The question is, why does he include any? Now, I will tell you, I'm just being a little bit transparent with you at this point. I hated that doctrine at one point in my life. Despised it. Despised it. Now, when I understand about the drawing of God, I realize that what that does is that gives all glory to God in salvation and it takes me out of the equation to where I cannot even give a testimony a single stitch of my own salvation. I remember used to feel pretty good about myself saying, I'm so glad I decided to follow Jesus and decided to make him my savior. The problem with that is, is the only reason I did that is because he made me willing to do that. Again, you can't preach that message in some Baptist churches. You just can't. And again, faith and repentance must be given to people. Paul wrote about it in Philippians 1.29. It's a very familiar passage. But Paul says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, notice the context here, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's given. Given. You know, a, a dangerous word in evangelism is the word accept. Not E-X-C-E-P-T. Accept. A-C-C-E-P-T. All you have to do is accept Christ. 
Is that really what the gospel is? Or is the gospel something more? Is the gospel really what the very first message that Jesus and John the Baptist taught, which was the very first word, what was the first word of both of those, the first messages they preached? What was it? Repent. Some of the same people who hate the sovereignty of God don't believe in repentance. Not all, but some do not believe that repentance is part of salvation. They just say you just have to accept it. But where is that? Or admit. Admit what? Admit what the Bible already tells you? That you're a sinner? What truly is the gospel? Faith and repentance must be given to people. Paul talks about it being given. 2 Timothy 2, verses 25 and 26, as Paul is writing to Timothy, he mentions the same concepts here. Notice the 2 Timothy 2, verse 25 through 26. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Repentance is given. Grace is given. Faith is given. It's an amazing thing that people say, I created faith in myself. No, you were given repentance, which did what? Led to an acknowledgement of the truth. See, we get this all, we get this all backwards. The gospel is not admit these three points and then repent. The truth of the matter is we're brought to repentance by a gift and then we acknowledge the truth. That's where the whole argument comes. Does regeneration come first? And 100% free will believers hate that. Why would we hate the gift of God? Why would we hate the regenerating power of the Spirit that allows us to acknowledge the truth? And also the, the classic passage, which I hope we're familiar with, is Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. There's no more disputed what's being said here than Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We see the order. We see it's by grace. We see that we're saved through faith. A lot of people believe that it's through a co-op. I do my part. God throws out his part and then you meet him in the middle. So what does it really teach us? Well, we know that in the book of Ezekiel, even Ezekiel, long before Jesus Christ came, taught the truth that man must receive a new heart to even have a willingness or a disposition to submit to God. That's Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. So what is this paragraph really doing? This paragraph is building on a theological foundation that's found in chapter 6. It's emphasizing this truth. Faith is a gracious gift from God through the work of the Spirit. Notice in the confession that first phrase. It says, 
and, this, and the confession writers were very careful about this, it says that the elect are enabled to believe. So the question is, do believers exercise faith themselves? Yes or no? Okay, they do, but they're enabled to do so, right? Now, our pride-filled human spirit doesn't like that. Believe it or not, we are all about our rights to choose and do whatever we want to do. Even in salvation. I have a right, I've heard this, I have a right to reject or to receive Christ. No, you have a command to repent and believe. So, if they're enabled to believe, they do exercise faith themselves. In other words, I want you to get this settled in your heart. Faith is not something that's done for you. If faith is done for you, then you become a robot. You're enabled to believe. But every person must personally, personally repent and believe the gospel themselves. They're enabled to believe that through the new birth and through the work of the Spirit in their hearts, they believe that it is a work of God. Now, a lot of people dismiss the Bible's teaching on the idea of unconditional election because they sense, and this is a true, and I've seen this, I've seen this work in people's lives. People discount election because they sense that in something happened to where they believed in Christ all by themselves. I don't recommend this, but that's the very thing that will cause a great firestorm with people. And it'll cause a firestorm amongst even people that call each other brethren. When you point people to the reality that this is in no way, shape, or form about you, we just can't get by that. But the Bible agrees that people do, in fact, exercise faith themselves. So when you, when you were brought to faith and you acknowledged and believed and repented, you, it was a conscious act. You didn't just wake up and say, I don't know where that came from. Now, again, I'm not against calling someone to come to Christ immediately. I'm not against calling someone to immediate repentance and belief. But can I share something with you? Salvation is not always a flash in the pan right in that moment event. It is what has led preachers to stand up and play 30 verses of an invitation hymn because they believe that their message was unsuccessful if they don't see results. Folks, I live this. I saw it. I saw it week after week after week. We just keep playing until we get people to move. And then we say, great, we had five people come forward. Now, if those five people came forward and truly repented and believed, then praise God for it. But I'm going I'm to be very transparent with you. Of the people that I personally saw come forward in that sense, very few of them stayed with Christ. And a lot of them today are nowhere near the church. Now, does that mean it can't happen? I'm not saying that at all. But I've watched people denigrated because their salvation, they could not give an exact time and an exact date. 
I know people who actually say, I was saved on August the 8th, 1992 at 8.30 a.m. on the dot. You don't have to know that specifically. My date of salvation is written in an old Bible my parents bought me. And I'm going to tell you to this day, I don't know if that was the date of my conversion. What I'm going to tell you right now is I suspect that it wasn't. It's, it's, it's written. So if somebody says, well, were you saved? Yes, yeah, written on the cover of my Bible. And I'm not trying to be irreverent, but there are people, that's what they're basing their entire salvation on, is that their parents wrote it in the cover of their Bible. It's not salvation. And by the way, I am thankful for my heritage. I'm thankful that my parents had me in church. I'm thankful that I grew up in a Christian home. I don't know what it is like to not be around Christianity. But I do know the reality here is, is that we don't always come to a full understanding of what really repentance and belief is. And we shouldn't be making people feel guilty if in a 45-minute sermon they don't fully acknowledge and come forward. Every, every meeting of the church is not going to be filled with excitement and emotional highs. A good day in church is not marked by how good the Spirit was and how excited people were. And it's even, and I want you to kind of just hold yourself down now. If we leave church today and someone doesn't get saved this very hour, this very moment, it doesn't mean we had a bad day in church. Folks, I've been in places, and again, I'm, I'm running on, I understand. I have told you this. I've been in places where salvation, they were notches on a wall. And people would come back with glowing reports of how many people they led to Christ today. And my question to you is, if they truly have saving faith, where are they? How many people have been led astray by simply praying a prayer, but never brought to repentance and give no evidence Remember, the main purpose of salvation was not so man could escape hell. The main purpose of salvation is God's glory. And until we get that in our mind, we have to understand that that's what's happening here. Next week, we're going to stop there. Next week, we're going to deal with two further points about this. And I'm going to give you these in advance so you can be prepared. First of all, we'll talk next week about saving faith arises as people hear the word of God. And then secondly, we'll look at how faith can actually grow. And this will kind of play on the two uh, things that we've been talking about. Anybody have any questions before I give you a question to consider this morning? Last week I gave you the question that was a little bit perplexing when we talked about the prosperity gospel and if it had limits. And that question was a good one, I think. It, it, it generated a great conversation. So if you're thinking of it, go ahead, Lauren.